The Maldives. It's a nation of 1,200 islands in the Indian Ocean, and it's known to most as a luxury vacation destination. But at the same time that cocktails are being served up to tourists, the Chinese government is investing millions in the country to help pay for infrastructure. China gets a port out of that deal. And for Beijing, that trade is about more than just shipping. It's about seizing control of the region from its natural leader, India. Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Scott Landman, economics editor for Bloomberg in Washington. I'm Daniel Moss, economics writer and editor at Bloomberg View in New York. The struggle for regional power between China and India goes back to the 60s. So how did the Maldives become a playground for great powers? And by the way, why is it so important their game be played here? Isn't the Maldives sinking and on its way to being underwater in a few decades? Let's find out from somebody who's very familiar with the geopolitics of the region. Joining us here in our DC studio is Shalesh Kumar, South Asia analyst at Eurasia Group. He's a former India economist at the US Treasury and held various roles at HSBC, Morgan Stanley, and State Street. Shalesh, welcome to Benchmark. Hi, thanks for having me. So, to many people in the West, the idea of an economic and military cold war being fought in the Maldives just seems kind of incredible. You have vacationers and honeymooners who are going there mainly to get away from it all. So what's going on here? Are there effectively two Maldives? So I think the the term cold war is very appropriate. I would I think it may be a little too strong, but we are at, in the midst of what is effectively a new form of a cold war between India and China. Why Maldives is it's because of its geography, where it's positioned. It's just miles off of the coast of India, which makes it particularly sensitive and very valuable to China. If you take a look at what China's bigger play in South Asia is, they've been slowly picking off one by one all of India's neighbors with various means of influence over these countries. But the strategy is very clear. They want to encircle India, and they want to do so for a couple of reasons. One, they want to contain India. They see it as a threat. Two, they want access to the Indian Ocean. And three, they want to have broader supremacy in Asia. And to do so, you need to keep India confined. And again, given where Maldives is located, it perfectly fits into the strategy. Now, why would China feel threatened by India or feel competition from India? Its economy is a fraction the size of China's. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, historically, the two have had a border dispute. So if you take a look at the map of India and China, there's a state in the northeast called Arunchal Pradesh. Uh, China claims it as its own, the whole state. They say that it's part of southern Tibet, effectively. India says it's its own state. So this is a big source of issues between the two countries. They can't even agree on the border. But that, you could say, is an India-China-specific event, so why not just figure out the border? The broader concern or the broader problem China has with India is, yes, you're right. Right now, India is not a direct economic threat, but that may not be the same case 30 years from today. As an extension of that, we also need to consider who could influence the global order in the next century. Are countries going to look and adopt, quote unquote, the Indian model of democracy, its form of capitalism to the extent that they are capitalist, or are they going to look more towards the Chinese model? And that's not just governance and economics and institutions, but also in terms of 
what type of ideology the rest of the world takes in? What kind of development model? What kind of, uh, what kind of spheres of influence these countries want to project around the world if, in fact, you agree that Western powers are in a form of decline? So with that in mind, China really needs to go out of its way to take care of its one close proximate threat, which is India, because, again, it's right on its border. So is that more of a military threat or an economic threat? I mean, you talked a little bit about both, but which one would you say is taking more precedence in the Chinese political calculations? I'm going to hedge a little, and I would say it is a mix of both. And the reason I say that is the economic threat isn't yet as obvious because India is not stealing jobs away from China. And so from that perspective, the Chinese don't have to worry about anything. On the military threat part, again, the two we don't see the two going to war. That's not the that's not where this is going to play out. But the strategic influence India can have over the region and over the world does then become an economic problem for China. So what I mean by that is China has a lot of interest in Africa, for example, or in Pakistan or Southeast Asia. And to make sure all of this works the way the Chinese want it to work, they need to make sure India doesn't become a spoiler in any of it or doesn't try to expand its influence or its ideology into these countries. So to make sure that doesn't happen, you then invoke the military option. And by option, I'm not saying a war, but I'm saying you try to gain control strategically over countries around India so that it cannot assert its dominance through the military. And by doing so, you also then control the economic side of the equation. Now, how does this break down on the ground in the Maldives? There's been a couple of changes of government, and I believe a port is also up for grabs. That's right. So for a very long time, the Maldivian government was very pro-India. There was a lot of proximity between the leadership. A lot of Indians would vacation in the Maldives. Maldivians, by ancestry, are part Indian in some cases. So there was a lot of closeness between the two. What's changed in recent years is that the current president has taken the country in a decisively more Chinese stance. So part of this means he's accepted a lot of money from China. Uh, he has taken away a lot of the Indian influence. So, for example, that one of the airports in the Maldives was being developed by an Indian uh, company. That contract was rescinded when the new president came in. So you start to see that the country is pivoting towards China. I think in general, India would be okay if other countries have some economic role. But when it starts to tilt too far, again, given the closeness of how close the Maldives are to India, it becomes a problem. What India's concern is, is some of this economic influence going to be translated into hard military assets? And this is where the port comes into play. The port that's under consideration for development, right now it's being marketed as simply a commercial port. But what happens if that's not the case? What happens if China starts to use this port as a as a port of entry or for its navy and starts to dock naval ships there. And again, given how close the Maldives are to India, that's a direct threat. What happens if some of these assets are used as listening stations on Indian communications? Because that's all a lot of intelligence is gathered from a signals intelligence standpoint. So what is for now just proximity or an economic relationship could eventually translate into a very direct problem for India. What's India doing to fight back against China? So first, just to take a step back for a second, how the current problem came to be. The current president in the Maldives, what he has done is he's declared a state of emergency. India is using this as an opportunity to paint him as a dictator who's subverting the democratic ideals of the country. That's really the only way India can get into this. For a while, they had a problem with this president. And what they were hoping for was that the domestic audience would finally come around to see that the way he's running the country is not right. And then the next elections, one of their, one of the more pro-Indian presidents can come into power. 
With the current situation of the state of emergency, which has sparked a constitutional crisis, India is using it to its advantage, which is how they're going to probably play this going forward. They've organized a global campaign of pressure. They've gotten the U.S., U.K., and Germany to put pressure on the current government to end the constitutional crisis. And along with that, what India is not officially saying is they actually want him to go. They want him to fall down from power. They want one of their people to come in. Obviously, China doesn't like this. So now you're hearing a lot more pressure from China asking India to stand down, asking India to respect the rights of the Maldivian government so that they don't get involved in an internal affair that India has no business being involved in. So it's not clear yet if India's posture is going to work, but this is India's game plan. They want this president out. If it didn't like the way things were going in the Maldives, could China do what it's done in other countries and say, we're not going to send tourists there or we're not going to allow our country's tourists to go there anymore? Does it have that kind of economic leverage? Is that a possibility? That is one option. It definitely has that economic leverage, but the more longer term or the more obvious tool that they'll probably use is no longer provide investments or in the instance those investments and those loans aren't adequately financed to demand some form of retribution. So we look at Sri Lanka as a model for how this could end in the short term or how this could play out in the short term. In Sri Lanka, the Chinese invested heavily in a port of Hambantada, which from the beginning everybody said didn't really make a lot of economic sense. There was not much value in this port. The Indians said this to the Sri Lankans, that you should not be taking this money. They went ahead, they built the port, and to this day it's not capable of servicing its debt. So ultimately what Sri Lanka did is they sold the port to China or to a Chinese-owned company. In the process of that negotiation, one of the concerns India and other countries had was that could this port, like I just mentioned with the Maldives, could this port be used by the Chinese Navy? And the Sri Lankans said no, and they structured the deal in a way that could prevent this. But it's still an outstanding question because China partially owns that port. And so this is where the Chinese could take it. They could, like I said, stop the investments, which is a pressure tactic. They could stop tourists, as you noted, or they could, over time, look to convert some of these assets over to it and hold these governments more beholden to their interests. And how many people sprawled out on the beach sipping champagne are aware of all this happening around them? Probably not one of them. It feels like there's a massive disconnect, like there's two Maldives. I would say, yeah, there is, absolutely. And this is what makes this part of the world so fascinating and so critically important, which is when most people look at geopolitics or geopolitical risk, they're the obvious outstanding issues, North Korea, Iran, Russia, etc. But what's happening in South Asia, specifically with these small islands, and more specifically with port development in and around India, is one of the most critical and sensitive things that more people need to start paying attention to because it puts these two very large powers in direct conflict with one another. So how direct is that conflict going to get in the coming years? Well, if you start to see, if this starts to go out the way it's currently happening, then you're likely going to see more and more port development. I mentioned Sri Lanka uh, and the port of Hambantara. We were talking about the Maldives and the port that's under consideration there. In Pakistan, there's already a port under construction in Gwadar. That's part of a broader project called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is part of the even bigger Belt Road Initiative that China, or OBOR, as they now call it, or interchangeably call it, the Belt Road Project that China is embarking on. If that port comes to fruition, and you have a port in Maldives, and in Seychelles, and even one in Bangladesh that's partially being built with Indian assistance, 
and you have the artificial islands built out, and you have one in East Africa, which the Chinese do already control, then you're looking at a scenario where there's greater and greater Chinese control of the Indian Ocean and of South Asia. And again, this all feeds back into the broader problem India has. Is it being encircled? And right now, it seems like they are. And Shailish, in the background, India has been cuddling up to Japan, the US, Vietnam, Israel. No coincidence, surely. No, not at all. We, we are in the midst of a complete reorientation of foreign policy and foreign relations in South Asia. Just as recently as 30 years ago, India and the U.S. did not see eye to eye. We're now in an environment where India is actively and very closely working with the U.S. on sensitive areas like defense cooperation, for example. India is deepening its ties with Vietnam. They're reaching out to Israel, a country that they didn't even have any diplomatic relations with 30 years ago. Japan fits into this. So you're seeing a string of relationships being developed that are more for India's self-interest and self-preservation, which was not always the case in the past. Just for context, India had a very ideological approach towards foreign policy. It now has a very much of a pragmatic or realpolitik approach towards foreign policy. So let me ask one more question related to that. If India is aligning with the U.S. and the U.S. is taking a stance right now, I mean, I'd say there's a lot of anti-China rhetoric coming from the Trump administration, but, you know, in terms of actual actions to contain China in the region, you know, we haven't really seen a lot of concrete moves in the past couple of years. Am I, uh, or at least since the Trump administration came into office, is my impression of that correct, that even a U.S.-India alliance probably wouldn't be much to stop China from doing what it wants to do? You are correct. And this is kind of, this is one of the challenges that faces India and a lot of its foreign policy or in a lot of its engagements with the world. The first is the word alliance. In Indian domestic politics, having a formal alliance with America is for now not an option. It's just it's just too politically challenging to become an ally of America. It's not something India is looking at, which is why you'll see the phrase strategic partnership used. It's a proxy for the word alliance or ally. So that's the first. The second is what is the give and take in this partnership? Is India willing to send troops to fight alongside U.S. troops in places like Afghanistan? Probably not. That also means in a future event or in a future uh, military engagement, will India partner along with America? Also probably not. So it's not yet obvious what the two can do together. Yes, India wants more defense cooperation. Yes, they also want more cutting-edge weapons but they're very slow in the weapon procurement process. They're not willing to do certain things. They're not willing to fully join hands with America in certain areas. So this makes the engagement a lot more challenging, which also makes the how do you deal with China part of it not very clear. All for a few coral reefs. So let's just close on the issue of the Maldives. Rising sea levels, won't this country be underwater in a few decades? Perhaps so, but between now and then... A lot of damage can be inflicted on India through the Maldives. As I noted, the port is one, but also, given the proximity, an intelligence base in the Maldives for the Chinese could be very destructive for India. It could be a very strong position in terms of listening in on Indian signals and communication networks. All right, Shalesh Kumar from the Eurasia Group, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Well, Scott, there's a perspective on the Maldives that you don't hear every day. It's like there are two Maldives. There's the tourist brochure, honeymoon destination, and then there's the great strategic game. That's right. And I have to say, as somebody who lived in Beijing for three years, I think when I was there, there was sort of increasing chatter about the Maldives as a tourist destination. And I might have even looked up myself、uh, what kinds of beaches and resorts they had there. And little did I know, even at that time, that even just a few years later, it would be the focus of such a huge geopolitical tussle between China and India. Well, I have been there. And as I sipped champagne on the beach, not for a moment did I think that the fate of the world might hinge on the sand around me. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and Stitcher. Please take the time to rate and review the show. And you can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me at, at Scott Landman. Dan, you are at Moss underscore Eco. And you can find Shalesh on LinkedIn or his employer, Eurasia Group, at, at Eurasia Group on Twitter. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 